Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Abby Covert, also known under the pseudonym Abby the IA, is an information architect at Etsy. She's the author of How to Make Sense of Any Mess and invented World IA Day, a global annual celebration of IA. She teaches information architecture at the School of Visual Arts and General Assembly in New York City. Abby also served as the president of the Information Architecture Institute, a global nonprofit membership organization focused on empowering IA leadership. In this episode, Abby talks about her goal to democratize IA. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of UX Radio. It is our extreme pleasure to welcome Abby Covert, aka Abby the IA, to today's program. Welcome, Abby. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. We are so excited to have you on the show. I'd love to start the conversation with where you started. How did you get into information architecture? Oh, man. I actually really enjoy telling this story, so thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, It all started with a very sketchy Craigslist posting back in 2004. I had just graduated from Northeastern University with a degree in graphic design and multimedia, and I was looking for a job to pay my rent. And the ad that I responded to was icon designer for banking software in Bermuda, which I'm going to go ahead and say as job postings go that that one's like pretty high on the sketch level. Um, But I really needed to pay my rent. So I responded to it. And I worked with this project manager who was uh, kind of going between the team in New Hampshire and the client in Bermuda and working on this piece of software. And they gave me a list of verbs and had me make icons to a certain specification. And when I went to go give them the icons, I rented a car, packed up my jazz drive and drove up there. They showed me where the icons were going to go in the software. And I basically pushed back on them. And I was like, this is terrible. Like, you can't put all these icons across the top of this software. It, it, it's just going to be such a mess. And they were like, well, what would you do? And I said, well, I think you should have a menu system with like nested menus of like items that people would understand the words around as opposed to all these little pictures. And they were like, oh, that's a good idea. Do you know what information architecture is? And I was like, yeah, I went to design school. Of course I know what information architecture is. And they're like, no, no, no. There's people doing this work on menu systems for software and they're called information architects. Is that something you know how to do? And I was like, no, but I could learn. So I started on that project and uh, I was at that consultancy as a full-time consultant doing IA work for a few years and sort of moved on to other IA roles from there and kind of never looked back. Wow, I love that story. New Hampshire and Bermuda, that really is a, that really is an interesting combination. Yeah, yeah. And it also, you know, kids out there, you know, Craigslist could be sketchy, but sometimes it's the right way to go. <laughs> Good advice. What, um, how, how do you see the relationship between IA and UX? So I am a big believer of user experience as the umbrella and information architecture as one of the specialties under the generalist function of user experience. So I think any user experience designer, um, whether they know it or not, are practicing information architecture as part of their job, similarly to the way that they're also practicing interaction design and they're hopefully also doing their own user research and other forms of research. Um, visual design can also fall under that that umbrella as well. So I see IA is uh, one of the many beautiful specialties under that gorgeous umbrella we call UX. 
So I've kind of thought about information architecture as a foundational component that if you don't have good IA, there's no way you can have a good user experience. So I'm just curious. I love the mashup that you've done of the IA heuristics, and I've used that throughout my career uh, with great success. Thank you very much. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you develop the heuristics and how you see those as part of the process of developing a user experience. Sure. The process of developing the heuristics really came out of the need to teach information architecture. So I knew that there was a lot of different sources out there for sort of guideposts and um, best practices on information architecture and also user experience and kind of the relationship between those two. Um, but what I didn't see was a really clear list of them that could be referenceable at a high enough level that it would make sense to students, um, kind of as like that entry level. So the process of putting together those heuristics was really relying on all the other sources that were out there and bringing them together and then kind of taking a, a look at them from a grade level perspective and making sure that they were all kind of at that same level of understanding. Um, if you look back at like the sources that were used for those heuristics, it's everything from, you know, bodies of academic work to blog posts that came out 10 years before the heuristics list that I published. So by looking at all of them, I was able to kind of make a, a taxonomy that would take all of those things together and then group them under uh, 10 principles. It's true that Laura actually does carry around a poster with the heuristics. I bet you have one in your car right now. It's at, it's at my office, actually. It's on, on the wall at her office. She, yes. she brought it here and then she took it with her. <laughs> That's awesome. Is it is it the one from the understanding group with the whiteboard? Yes. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. Yes. I love that thing. It's and so cool. We actually do a heuristics workshop every month. And so I, I get out the poster every month. It's wonderful. That's amazing. You've changed at least one life. Oh, that's so good to hear. It makes it all worth it. What, uh, actually, uh, continuing on that vein, in your experience, what have been the biggest challenges in teaching UX? I would say manufacturing the right context for them to understand how important the context of working is. Like it's very difficult to engineer a situation in a classroom where you're telling them about how important it is to kind of collaborate with other people in an organization around the decisions that are involved in UX and IA, where you don't have like, you don't have stakeholders that are being jerks or having opinions. You, you just have other students. So it's, I think that that's probably the most difficult part is like getting that realistic context to be set. I have done some of that like play acting and having people, you know, pretend to be the rough client and things like that, which uh, I'm sure, Chris, you're very familiar with from the <laughs> IA slam world. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that that's probably the most difficult part. It's just like the, the practical reality of it just doesn't really come through until you're actually on a project doing the work for a real client or with real colleagues in a real organization. Yeah, uh, that's really true. I do. Lynn Boyden invites me in to do a lecture every year for her uh, IA class at UCLA. And uh, the lecture I do now, I actually, uh, the first person to do it was Boone Sheridan, and uh, I've stolen his material. But the talk is, these are the people in your neighborhood. And it's all about the different roles and people that you'll run into uh, in your mm. professional life. And it always is a really, it's a tough conversation and very eye-opening. You know, they, many of them have just discovered UX and then yep. and they and they they love it and then they but they kind of think that they're going to get to go you know back to their uh, high castle 
and do all mm -hmm. the design and, and then somebody will just execute it. And so when they yeah. find out that it's actually embedded in a whole set of institutions and stakeholders and politics, it's, it is uh, always very eye-opening for them. I think it's also really difficult to explain to them that you can do all of the research and you can look at the thing from the user's perspective all day long, but at the end of the day, you still need to convince other people to come along on that decision with you. And sometimes um, the priorities of an organization or the individual opinions of a, a one specific person, depending on who they are in the org, can dramatically change what the recommendation ends up being. And I think that that's, that's something that I, very early in my career, was very frustrated by because I felt like but I know what I'm doing and I asked users and this is what users want and this is the best solution. And I just kind of felt like I was hitting up against that brick wall. I feel like now, a little later in my career, I, I actually enjoy that part. Uh, the idea that, you know, all of these people come to this project with their own mental model of the way things are going and should go. I feel like I get a lot out of the like reconciliation of my coworkers and my clients that I, I used to dread that part and kind of stick to the present what you have and hope nobody gives you too much feedback. Um, but now I actually, I, I'm much more apt to ask for the feedback early on and also not come in with something fully baked and think that like they're going to just buy it right off the page. Yeah, I think that in some ways I consider that part of my agile journey to realize that, you know, I want to give the, get the feedback early and, uh, and, and be prepared to pivot, to change, to adapt uh, yep. early on. So what was the impetus to writing the book you released recently, How to Make Sense of Any Mess? Uh, definitely teaching. At the time that I started writing that book, I was teaching at Parsons. I was teaching an undergraduate elective class in information architecture. So, you know, I didn't have their full attention. I was not something that was like the thing they, they were all exploring as a career. It was more like they chose, you know, to take my class versus like pottery, <laughs> things of that nature. So I couldn't really give them um, kind of the canonical information architecture texts that were out there because they weren't written to that level where you could get through it quickly and kind of get the concepts and be able to have a discussion about it. Um, so that was kind of the, the impetus for starting thinking about writing a book. And then uh, the 18 months between kind of deciding I was going to write a book about IA for, for beginners uh, to actually releasing it, it went through many different interpretations. And I did a lot of testing with readers to just kind of get it to that right grade level and also that, that right place of uh, being applicable to a lot of different scenarios and not just folks that were working within UX on digital products, for example. Now that you wrote that book, and by the way, it's an amazing book, and if you don't have it, you all should get it. I mean, your writing style is beautifully simple and direct and clear. Uh, I love the way that you've broken it down into a lot of easy steps with practical worksheets, by the way. I just, I'm such a fan uh, of that book. But I want to ask you now, uh, looking back on it, what's, what's the thing about it that you wish you'd gotten in there or that, it, you know, that bothers you the most about it? Aside from the handful of spelling errors that still bug me every time I see it, um, uh, I would say probably diagrammatic technique is something that I didn't edge into the book as much as I wish I had. So I talk a lot about types of diagrams in the book. And one of the reasons for that is because I feel like wireframes and uh, sitemaps are sort of like the go-to diagramming technique for talking about information architecture. And unfortunately, those two diagrams require you to have already developed an idea for a solution. So I focus a lot of the book on uh, kind of moving 
upstream of that to frame ideas using diagrams. And I feel like in in practicality, getting people to draw diagrams, there's a lot of technique that goes along with making diagrams clear. And that's something that I've developed uh, subsequent content for for uh, my classes that I teach now. So that's something that I, I sort of wish I had I'd fit in there. Um, but it just didn't seem it didn't seem like the thing at the time. Uh, it sort of felt like a 201 level thing. But I think looking back on it, I think the book could have could have used a, a chapter on that. Well, there you go. There's your next book. Yeah. How to diagram any mess. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. About a year and a half ago, I moved from being what I call an Audi to being an innie. So I had been an external consultant for the majority of my career. Starting from that very first Craigslist gig, I was almost always working for clients. And about a year and a half ago, I had a client, Etsy, which is a um, internet retailer. And I just really fell in love with them. I just, I, their ideals and, and kind of like what the organization stands for and their mission just really resonated with me. And I started to think like, if I was gonna be full-time on one mess, this is the kind of mess that I'd like to be full time on. So uh, we got into conversations about that. And I, I joined the team uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and yeah, right now I am the senior staff information architect at Etsy. And I'm the only information architect at Etsy. But my job is not to do all the information architecture work there. Um, instead, the way we framed my position is that I'm trying to democratize information architecture as a skill set across the entire organization, so that organizationally, we get better at thinking about information information architecture. So I, I'm not like the czar of IA at Etsy. It's more like a, a mentorship position. Wow. How are you going about doing that? So there's a couple of things that um, that I've instituted. One is that I'm basically operating like an internal consultant. So any team that feels like they have an IA challenge that is bigger than their skill set can book time with me and we treat it just like any other consulting engagement. It gets scoped out and timed on a calendar and then we execute on it. But the other thing that I've started doing is I, I'm doing a weekly office hours uh, for IA. So it's a three hour block on my calendar that I save for folks that are just in the moment dealing with an IA challenge and maybe they feel like they just need to talk it out with somebody. Um, so sometimes those conversations, which usually run about a half an hour, sometimes they're about me helping them to frame the problem in that half an hour so that they can go and solve it. And sometimes it's the impetus for us to think about like a larger project that we might work on together, uh, depending on kind of what the context is. So I think those those two things have um, been working quite well. I, I feel like I'm, I'm just now getting to the place where my services are in demand enough that I need to start like saying no and scheduling people out a little bit further. Um, so we're starting to think about like the scalability of it and, and kind of what's next for the organization. Uh, and I love the site, by the way, and I have to agree with you. What an amazing, awesome mess to get to, to, get to work on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> stepping back a little bit from Etsy, what do, you, what do you see as sort of like the big challenges for UX designers and, and the field of UX uh, here in 2018? One of the the problems that I've been exploring a lot um, in kind of writing and, and speeches that I've been doing in the last year or so is around language and just the understanding that like language is this material that we all use every day in our personal lives, in our work lives. But we also 
take it for granted. We kind of assume that people understand what we mean when we say what we say, assuming that we're all speaking the, the same language in that we're all speaking English. But that's not always the case. So over the course of my career, I've been really interested in, in seeing the conflict that can arise from things like teams not being on the same page in terms of language that they use with each other, you know, let alone the user experience that comes out of those interactions. Um, so that's something that I've really been kind of focused on in, in terms of uh, identifying like what are the things that that could be done outside of the design of products that could actually help organizations to better align on language and to better make sure that they do know what each other are saying uh, when they use certain certain terms or sayings. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. Very deep philosophically. And, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's amazing uh, as an Audi now, right? I, I go into these organizations all the time. And one of the first challenges is try to understand the particular patois that, mm-hmm. each, that every enterprise has developed. What? Yeah, it, it doesn't take you very long to hang out in an org before all of a sudden you find yourself saying things that you're like, wait, did, did I say that before I worked here? I, I don't think so. <laughs> like yeah. everything from like how they refer to each other and the words that they use in meetings, the, the things that they call the documents that come out of the process, the role titles. I mean, don't even get us started on job titles in this industry. It's It's kind of a mess. Do those groups find value in creating that consistent language? I think so. I mean, the the groups that I've worked with in doing so sort of come to that that moment of like the light bulb realization where they realize what has been holding them back is language. Um, And sometimes that's as simple as like a single word being redefined. Um, I've had many instances where, you know, two teams from the same company are using the same term slightly differently. And as a result, they're having arguments around scope and responsibilities and rollout planning and measurement. Um, So it's sort of, I feel like language is this gate that if you're if that gate is hard to get through, it just makes it harder to do the rest of the project. Interesting. So do you do you see that as a, sort of an issue of controlled vocabulary? Is that yeah, the yeah. that's the the technical approach to solving it is getting everybody on the same page about how they're using those terms? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I see controlled vocabularies as the documentation technique that comes out of discussing language, and I feel like too many times we either don't discuss language or we discuss language and then we never document it. And when you discuss language and never document it, you might as well have never discussed it to begin with. So controlled vocabularies are something that I see all too often as used as purely technical tools um, for you know the management of deep taxonomies and metadata schemas, when in reality, controlled vocabularies can be just as useful in more of like the human layer of like the words that we use to describe things that we talk about in meetings or in documentation in the organization, or the way that we talk about things in marketing to our users and uh, you know to our customers so I, I feel like that documentation technique being applied to a much broader swath is something that I'm, I'm really excited about yeah we've had the same thing happen um, where I'm working now and we'll just ask a simple question how do you define browsing you kind of get some eye rolls at first But then when you go around and you start really digging deeper, it's really amazing the differences uh, where we're not in alignment. Yeah, I mean, the story that I I love to tell that kind of like broke the world open for me in terms of this language problem was a startup that I was working with a couple years ago that through the first couple weeks of me working with them, I realized that they had 
14 ways to refer to the same core object that was at the center of their business. And the reason for it was, um, and this was all in English, this wasn't like, you know, translations into different languages. Um, the core reason was that this language had developed over time. Like, I, I really I think it's important to make the point that no one sits down one day and says, hey, let's come up with 14 ways to say the same damn thing. Like, that's just not the goal. Um, instead, it's something that happens as teams get brought on and are working on different parts of the project in different silos, or in this company's case, they had acquired a few other companies and inherited language that came along with them. And you just saw these 14 terms kind of, you know, scattershot through everything from their marketing materials to the interfaces of their actual products, to the way that they talk to their customers on the phone when they called to cut for customer service. So all of these things were, you know, big scope implications. Um, and it, I feel like language is kind of like barnacles on a ship, you know, and you can have a couple of inconsistencies and still sail around, but there's a certain breaking point where you're going to get so much that's, you know, kind of smat onto your hull that you can't move anymore. And now it is holding you back. And for this company, it was, oh crap, we have 14 ways of saying the same damn thing. And we're about to translate into five other languages. That's just not, it's an impossible situation. They had to deal with that before they could move forward. I'd love to change the topic to World Information Architecture Day. This is an event that is every year, and it's a celebration of information architecture all over the world. So what inspired you to create this event? Back in 2009, I started working with the Information Architecture Institute on a conference that they did once a year called IDEA. And it was in a single North American location. It ran about 250 to 300 people. It was keynote style. So it was a single track, two day uh, with some pre-conference workshops. So a pretty typical conference setup. And at the time, one of the things that the IA Institute was starting to think about was a globalization approach. They really wanted to make sure that that we were having more of a global footprint. Um, and so while I was the executive producer of uh, IDEA in the following year, 2010, I brought to the team this idea of killing IDEA in favor of a, a more global approach to uh, the idea of having a conference. So basically it started with Dan Klein in my kitchen and me just ranting about how we were never going to be a global organization if we had a conference that was for privileged people in North America once a year for like 200 and something of us. So ultimately, he and I co-authored a paper that um, sort of went through the reasons why we didn't think IDEA was serving us anymore as an organization, um, and also about this idea of creating IDEA Streams, <laughs> which was the original name of World Information Architecture Day. And ultimately, we decided in branding it that it made more sense to bring the concept of information architecture into the name, um, and that's when IDEA Streams went away and World Information Architecture Day was born. And now we're serving 25 countries, five continents, and I think last year was, what, 56 locations? Yep. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm completely thrilled. I mean, the, the team, every year, it's just, it blows me away how people can come together in a completely volunteer capacity. And, you know, Laura, uh, I, I can't credit you enough for what you did a few years back when you really operationalized the volunteer network, because you've just made it such repeatable magic. So uh, yeah, I'm, Aww, I'm thrilled to, have, to be associated with that event. And uh, it's always fun to watch. Well, it's very close to my heart, and I am so excited to see it continue to grow. 
Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, still, I'm still waiting for Antarctica, but if anybody out there is listening that, that has any connections to Antarctica, we really want to get that, that last continent in there. Yeah, I'm going to just say as, a, as an interested third party outsider to all this, it's been amazing. I really think of uh, information architecture as a relatively small community of professionals. Um, I've always liked that about it. But to see the momentum and to, to just be able to step outside of myself and watch how this has grown is, has been pretty fantastic. And so the other thing I'll say is anybody listening should probably, if you want to get more involved in the community, there's lots of opportunities to volunteer wherever you happen to be. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the coolest thing about uh, World IA Day is that anyone, anywhere can say, you know what, I think that my town should have an event to talk about information architecture, and then they can sign up with World IA Day and make it happen. And I mean, some of our events start out as a pizza party in somebody's conference room, watching talks that are streamed in from other locations, and then you fast forward three or four years out, and they have a fully fledged community, and they have keynotes flying in, and they've got catering, and they've got a theater rented and and it's just amazing to see the growth so i i highly encourage anybody out there that's like man that would be so cool to be in my town think about signing up and trying to make it happen where do you see world ia day in like five years I really hope to see it be something that um, continues to be about information architecture. I think that there's a lot of events that are in the more generalized UX space, and I think that I, I World IA Day is specific, um, very specifically. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that it stays true to that. Um, I also would love to see kind of the operational side uh, get a little bit more tight in terms of our ability to provide um, sponsorship and support. Uh, it's been a real struggle over the years of doing something with an all-volunteer network for a free event um, to really like have the financial capital and power to do things like have uh, an archive and have live streaming of all locations. So I would love to see us kind of uh, have a little bit more in that space in the future. So if you're out there listening and you think you might want to be a sponsor, first call us at UX Radio, where we also have some intriguing sponsorship deals available. But then after that, you should definitely talk to the people at World IA Day who could use your help. Yeah, there's the global sponsorship and the local sponsorship. And I've been really impressed with the types of companies and the big brands that have started to get involved. I think UX is very sexy and IA doesn't seem as sexy. Um, they just They just don't know it yet. Yeah, story of my life, Laura. <laughs> when I ask you a little bit about uh, a big topic these days has is, is been ethics and design. And mm. I'm just sort of curious about how you see that challenge or if you've got a particular, you know, how you've personally uh, approached that in your work. Well, I feel like in a lot of cases, the the examples of ethics violations that I see, especially coming out of large tech companies, um, fall to the, we didn't think we needed to think about users for things like the algorithm. That's that's something that our community, I'm really proud of for like kind of stepping up and, and taking ownership and realization of that. Um, I don't see a lot of like, you know, wagging fingers as much as like, Kind of shame on us you know we haven't we haven't done a good job of going to the folks that are doing things like determining how an algorithm works and working with them on kind of taking that human-centered approach to what are all of the the cases that this might actually cause in the future so that's something that i'm really excited about as i i hear more and more people talking about it in the industry i also am really excited that my students are starting to see those case studies because you know in in their naive minds they come up with these ideas that if you put you know, a microscope 
um, onto them in terms of ethics, you can very quickly see how things break down. So I'm very thrilled that we're starting to have like coherent examples that students can look to and be like, oh, you don't want to be testifying in front of Congress. Uh, you better be thinking about that thing you created in your dorm room. Uh, I think that that's like a really interesting space to, to teach in and just like let them know the, the real life implications. I also think that really brings to life the fact that UX is not just the paint on the skin of the interface that we're designing. Like it, it actually is how the users feel about the thing that we're creating and that that's not just the colors of the buttons and the arrangements of things from a usability perspective, that it, it actually goes to that deeper human place. So I think it's a, a really exciting time to, to be in this industry. Right. And also how explicit are we being about what data we're collecting, what mm-hmm. what they have um, the ability to share or to not to share. So yeah, I think I think we have a little ways to go, but it's good progress. We have a lot of ways to go, but yes, I agree, good progress. <laughs> One more topic I'm interested in is if I understand correctly, you are basically working remote at Etsy. Yes. Yep. So how does that work? One of the one of the twenty percent of Etsyans that is working from their home. Nice. Basically, as a an external consultant, I was always remote, um, and I would travel for things like workshops and bigger presentations. Uh, but for the most part, the bulk of the work that I was doing was remote. And when I started working with Etsy with them as my client, it was a similar situation. And I would say that that's that's pretty much been maintained. I will say Etsy has done a, a really good job of kind of ingraining remote culture into the workplace. So a good example of that is um, our AV setup. So every conference room in all of the Etsy offices are hooked up to the same video conferencing system and you can just appear in a room as opposed to like being invited to a certain meeting that you have to dial into at a certain time so i can walk into any room the way that you can walk into any room as a as a physical person in a physical space um, which makes it a lot easier to be a remote there's still the challenges and there's definitely things that we've tried to work out um, in terms of like the collaborative moments of the work that that part we're still kind of like toying with different ideas. I have a Wacom tablet, so I can use that. Um, We definitely use a lot of um, asynchronous tools like Slack. Um, We also use Google Drive for pretty much everything. So we can be kind of co-editing documents as we're in a meeting together on video. So yeah, I've really enjoyed kind of learning what it's like to be a remote worker for uh, an organization full time. But I wouldn't say that it's from my life perspective, it's not all that different than, than what I was doing when I was independent. Uh, You gave me an an idea of something that I want to ask on an ongoing basis. What are your favorite software tools these days? I am obsessed with Google Drive. Uh, I feel like it they have done such a good job of making it so I never have to install software on my computer ever again. Um, I've finally broken my habit of using OmniGraffle. I was a longtime <laughs> OmniGraffle user, and I finally had to just ditch it because I don't want to save files and send them to people anymore. I, I want it all to be in the cloud. I want them all to just be able to appear in the document and change things or note things. Um, so I've moved almost entirely from a diagramming sense to Google Diagrams. Um, other than that, Google Sheets, Google you know, presentations, the, the whole thing. I'm, I'm completely bought in. Um, so the only software that I have installed uh, on my computer is the video conferencing software and Slack at this point. Wow, that's amazing. And I second that, by the way. I'm also quite quite a convert. The other day I had to install, uh, purchase and install Microsoft Word because I had to look at redline comments uh, on a contract. And oh. I felt I felt so 20th century. 
I, yeah, I, yeah. My my personal laptop is loaded up with all you know the last centuries of of software. So that I still dip into that occasionally, especially I, I teach at SVA and I do have an occasional need to open things in Microsoft products. But um, for the most part, with with my work with Etsy, I try to keep it all in the cloud. So, Abby, what advice would you give to people who are just trying to get started in information architecture? I would say if you're just getting started in information architecture, don't do too much work alone at your desk. Uh, that's something that I see too many folks kind of fall into the um, the trap of, of like, I'm going to sit at my desk for days and map out this thing and then show it to my coworkers and they're all going to think, oh, look, they figured it all out. No need to make any changes. And in reality, I think that that's actually going to get you a solution that's not as well thought out as when you work with other people. So I would say um, if you're just starting out in IA, like keep it low fidelity and keep it collaborative for as long as you possibly can um, before narrowing to an, a definitive solution. There's a lot of things around uh, diagramming things at too like fancy a level in terms of visuals where you can kind of turn people off from giving you real feedback. Um, and that's something that I, I see a lot of folks kind of fall to. It's like, if I can make a pretty diagram about this thing, then everyone will agree with me. And in reality, they might agree with you to your face. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're undoing all the decisions you thought that you helped them make. I'm also curious, as an experienced practitioner, what is the best advice you've gotten or could share with others who have been in this industry for a while? Oh, probably don't be an asshole. I would say like that's that's like a credo of life uh, for me at this point. There was a point where I was a few years into my career and I was very dogged with my opinions and I would get into fights with people in meetings and I was I was edging on that being a difficult person to work with territory. Um, and luckily, I had a manager at the time um, at the agency that I was at that kind of set me aside and was like, hey, we got to work on this as a skill and you're really talented information architect, but if you can't fix this people problem that you have, you're not going to get anywhere in your career. And I, I thank him every day for allowing me to have that realization because um, it entirely changed kind of how I practice and how I think about IA work. Wow. I'm going to ask one more question. Oh, good. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, man. No pressure. <laughs> um, when I think about the work that I've done as sort of a body of work, I, I do feel like it's all around that idea of democratizing IA and making it something that is approachable and useful to people in all walks of life. Like I've I've gotten notes from people who have read my book that are in industries that I never would have thought of as being like applicable to to the book and had people walk up to my readers in airports and ask like, what's that book about? That seems like something I could use. Um, so I feel like I would love my legacy to be that, that I took information architecture kind of out of the box and made it something that anyone could get value from and, and kind of understand that it's it's something that we all do, but we maybe don't know the words for it. And it's something that we can all get better at. And I don't know, it, it might seem really cheesy, but I really do feel like information architecture makes the world a clearer place. And I would like to live in a clearer place. And if, if my work and my career could make the world a clearer place, even in a tiny way, I think that that'd be pretty fantastic. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been really awesome. Cool. Well, I, I hope to see you both at an event uh, soon and uh, good luck with everything in the podcast. I'll keep listening. All right. Thank you again for your time and all your wisdom. Anytime. And oh. next year I'm going to schedule smoke breaks with you. That's my plan. Yeah. <laughs> 
good luck on that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I failed this year. Next year, I'm going to actually put it on your calendar. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll stand there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE dot IS.